Hello and welcome to Persistent and Nasty Podcast. This is our Edinburgh Festival Fringe 2019 series. Throughout this series, we will be talking to women of the fringe, from producers to directors, writers and performers. We hope you enjoy all of the podcasts and get along to see as much of it as you can. This podcast was recorded at Assembly Club Bar with thanks to Sharon Burgess, Danny Ray, Connell, Chris and all of the staff at the club bar. As we are recording out and about, you may hear some background noise. Hopefully it won't affect too much, but it might just give you the vibe and atmosphere of the festival. So sit back, relax and enjoy some persistent and nasty women. Another persistent and nasty pod at the Edinburgh Fringe, and we have got the amazing performer, producer, and all-round Berlin hero. <laughs> Do you want to give yourself your introduction? Sure. My name is Victoria Lin Chang, <laughs> but I'm known as Viva Lamour. That's my burlesque name. Yeah, Viva Lamour and more and more. Oh, <laughs> always more. And so you're here. You've brought the amazing Full Moon Cabaret to the Edinburgh Fringe. Yes, um, the Full Moon Cabaret is a cabaret that I direct, produce, and I often host it. In fact, I'm hosting it this whole month. So yeah, I say I'm the mistress of mayhem. Panty Wrangler and mistress of mayhem. <laughs> so that's the full introduction. And we're going to share with you a small excerpt from the amazing... Um, Beaver Moon. It's called Clitoracy, a political operata with a happy ending. crescendos in her song of female anatomy. Everyone orgasms up at, at the same time as the moon explodes and it rains silver confetti. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. And that was the beaver moon. Clitoris. A political operata with a happy ending. Clitoracy, yes. Because we should be literate in the clitoris. Yes. <laughs> clitorate. Clitorate. We should be clitorate. We should all be clitorate, yes. Amazing. So introduce yourself, please, to our wonderful podcast listeners. My name is Victoria Lin Chang. I'm otherwise known as Viva L'Amour. 
You're sexy, your name. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you're here at the Edinburgh Fringe doing the Full Moon Cabaret. That's right. It's at 11 p.m. on Lothian Road at the Raging Bull, every night except for Monday. And it is a wild art experience. Yes. And just all-round mad night of fun. Um, we say uh, burlesque variety and subversive surprises. Exactly. And it does all of the above. And you've just got four, a five-star review. Yes, a five-star review in the we review. Yeah, and it's an amazing review. I mean, I never imagined that we would get such a like amazing, like uh, superlative. Like, yeah, he loved everything about it. It's so exciting. And this is your second time at the the Fringe as well. Yeah, last year we only did um, half the run. And it went so well last year that I thought, okay, you know, actually we could continue and see what a full run is like, yeah. <laughs> and it's going well so far? So far, yeah. It's been um, full on every night. You know, I think the least we've had is like maybe um, four seats empty, you know, on the side and that's it. You know, yeah. that's on a rainy Tuesday. So, yeah, it's, we'll it's see mad. what this weekend is like. <laughs> it's going to be crazy, I'm sure. So, I feel like you've got the most amazing story. I already know it because... I am obsessed with the story of you coming into your performing performing lifestyle. But would you like to recap what's brought you here to this very day? Oh my god. Uh, no, like where does one start? I'm setting back <laughs> in my seat to enjoy the story because I love it. Oh my god. Well, okay, I am a trained actress actually, you know. Um but okay, uh yeah. I don't know, I've, I've sort of gone back and forth a lot between theatre and, like, cabaret slash burlesque slash sideshow. Um, I started working in theatre when I was 14 years old at a basement in a theatre in New York, um, a theatre that was um, once pretty much the most important political theatre in New York. It's called Theatre for the New City in the East Village. I ran away from home when I was 16, and I lived in a cage in the basement of the theatre. <laughs> that is all true. <laughs> The theater, um, it was a former market, so it had all these cages downstairs where the vendors used to store their things. My cage had a sign on it that said, please do not handle the fish by order of the Department of Health. Oh my God. Yeah, I love the sign, and when I, tried, when I left, I tried to remove it, and it just crumbled in my hands, and I was like, oh. <laughs> Your fish sign. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so um, I grew up in this, in this theater, um, um, and I was a teenage runaway and um, so yeah I got introduced by my very best friend to working in a strip club and it was this lovely thing if she took me downtown to the Pussycat Lounge and I realized that holy hell I made $80 you know in like 20 minutes you know just dancing in my underwear and <laughs> alright <laughs> yeah this was like more money than I made the whole week hey you know yeah so um I worked as a stripper on and off from the age of about 16 to, for about 10 years. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, so I was around actually for the birth of neo-burlesque in New York City. I just happened to be there at the right time and place um, where there were these two strip clubs. I mean, I worked at a circuit of four strip clubs, but there were these two in particular, one called the Baby Doll Lounge on White Street and another one just one block away called um, the Blue Angel and the neo burlesque movement in New York basically started from those two clubs. Um, um, it was Mayor Giuliani, he was 
he had this something called, he called the quality of life campaign, which was really the quality of lifelessness. Because, <laughs> yeah, he was closing down all of the strip clubs. He was um, uh, making life difficult for all street vendors, etc. Um, and basically, your pay plummeted. Um, if, if you were lazy and didn't work the audience... Oh, and I should go back a little bit. That the reason why Baby Doll Lounge in particular was so um, amazing was because um, they just had the best um, working policy of any place. You could just come in whenever you liked and leave whenever you wanted. So um, if you needed $50 to go out dancing, well, you could just go and work for two hours and you made your money, you know? If you were short $300 for your rent, well, you know, you could work for the weekend. Or, you know, if you were short more, you could work for the whole week. You just work whenever you wanted. Um, I mean, they would book two people, so there were definitely two girls dancing. But then sometimes they'd be like, you know, 15 or 20 girls on, like, the beginning of the month, you know, when rent needed to be paid. <laughs> but because of that, it was full of just the most interesting women, like um, single mothers, college students, artists of all types, dancers, you know, actresses. Um, because, yeah, you, you could set your own schedule, you know, and you worked as you needed. Um, and, you know, the, the way they treated you was beautiful, just simply because they, it was... Um, it was on your time, you know, so then, and they needed you. So then it was with a lot of respect. Um, yeah, so if you didn't work very hard at Baby Doll Lounge, which I never bothered, <laughs> um, it was um, about $200 that you would make for the full night, you know. Um, and But some girls would make like $400 if you were the more typical busty blonde or something. Um but yeah, your pay with Giuliani plummeted from that to about $60 a night. So basically the girls were just like, well, you know, if I'm only going to make $60 taking off my clothes, for hell, you know, for God's sake, you know, we can just organize our own night, you know, and make $60 and make it much more interesting for ourselves. So that's how the neo-burlesque movement began. It was these girls that just organized their own evenings. And literally we had no idea about um, the burlesque history. This was like mid-1990s, like 1996, 1997, um, and there was um, uh, really no, the internet didn't exist, there was really no real inkling of like this whole history. There were actually only three girls doing the gown and gloves classic burlesque, Billy Madley, um, who was a very good friend of mine, Dirty Martini and Bonnie Dunn, R really only those three girls, and everybody else was coming from a different uh, tradition either from modern dance, contemporary dance, or from uh, as an actress, um, and yeah, so it was like um, it was right away, like not exactly, you know, oh, we're trying to recreate this, like you know, way of movement or this dance from the 1940s. It was more like us coming from this contemporary vantage, you know, and uh, using those old. Um, that old vocabulary of movement to paint a whole new picture, you know. Um, there was a very much of, I, I think, you know, even if it was slightly subconscious, I, I don't think it was that subconscious. I think most people really were aware um, of this whole very feminist thing of like a male gaze f coming from working as strippers, you know. Everything was about the male gaze. Everything was about trying to get a rise out of guys, you know, and because, you know, they couldn't stick it in you, well, then they would stick a dollar in you, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, um, 
you knew that that's how it worked with stripping. But then, you know, the whole neo thing, the evenings, was more like, well, no, what do we want to say about our sexuality, you know, about how we are seen, you know, what, we, what do we think of being sexy, you know? Um, because, you know, for so many centuries, of course, it's always been men who have dictated, you know, how a woman should dress, you know, what is considered, you know, enticing to them. And it's all revolved around the penis, you know, mm-hmm. all revolved around a man. So what is a female gaze, actually, after all these centuries? And yeah, I think we're still working that out because, you know, it's been so many years, so many hundreds and thousands of years of this, um, that we have no other vocabulary. The only vocabulary we have comes from that tease, this ooh, ah, you know. Um, So now, you know, using that old vocabulary, how can we paint a different picture? And so this, to me, is what burlesque is about. And um, so, yeah, anyway, I was part of the whole burlesque movement when it began. Um, I produced probably the fir- one of the very first burlesque theater pieces called Girls Town, um, which went from Theater for the New City to Off-Broadway. And then I kind of, and then I was also working at Coney Island during that time. So. And this was still, like, in your early yeah, this was 20s. before I was 20 years old. Oh, my old. gosh. Yeah. Um, and then I sort of, but I was more interested in classical theater. I wanted to, like, do legitimate theater. I wanted to do classics, you know. So then I kind of left that all behind. I went to Oxford University, and I, yeah, I studied classical theater, and then I was producing theater and et cetera. And it was only when, for another really long story, I ended up having to leave New York, you know. Um, and I found myself very accidentally in Berlin, <laughs> Oh, no, I've stumbled and fallen into Berlin. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) literally. And in Berlin, I mean, everyone speaks English, but only to a certain level. Um, And I I just couldn't really do theater or film there. Um, So, yeah, so I just was like, okay, well, what do I do that doesn't use text, doesn't use language? And I was like, well, you know, burlesque and cabaret, here I come again. (laughs) (laughs) Straight back on it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been been interesting because... um, I mean, you know, back when, in the 1990s, when I was kind of part of it, uh, it was still very early days. Like, you kind of realize, right, um, there was a slow realization that, right, we can turn this into a storyline of some sort, um, where now the typical storyline is, like, some kind of stereotype that you just rip apart into shreds. Like, that's the typical burlesque storyline. But that was just coming to consciousness at that particular moment. So I never really exactly developed like a burlesque piece, you know? So um, it's been this really interesting thing of like, oh, me like um, stepping, you know, back into it after a time span of 20 years, you know, where burlesque has gone from when I knew it to where it is now. Um, and, uh, you know, how, you know, what is my burlesque style? Like, you know, um, how do I create, like, you know, a five to seven minute piece? My burlesque, I would say, is more like, you know, like a five to seven minute mini, 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 mini theater piece, you know? It does have a storyline. Um, yeah, and usually the things that I um, struggle with, a lot of identity, you know, a lot of 
Um, I'm Asian American, so a lot of things about being Asian and American, how people look at you, you know, and what I really am, which is not that at all, you know. <laughs> I am not, you know, like the demure sex kitten. I'm not the I'm not the dragon lady either, but uh, somewhere like you know in between, like most women, right? You know, you have your sex kitten side. Yeah, you can do that, you know. But you got your rawr side, you know. You can do that too, you know. You yeah. Can do whatever you want to be. Yeah. Whenever you feel like. Yeah. Exactly. You know. So yeah. So. A lot of, I have a few acts that revolve around, you know, the stereotypes of being Asian. Um, and I have just acts about just being a woman, you know, and your, the expectations people place on you because you're a woman. Um, and then just some that are just things that I'm interested in, like Hollywood, you know, and old films and, you know, yeah, different, various, weird little obscure storylines yes I love it I love it and so where did your where did the full moon come in with all of this so you were you were doing your own acts and were you kind of like performing in other people's shows and then you kind of thought you know actually you had this idea where where did that start well you know of all things you know when I was I, I just found this piece of writing that I did um after the first time I came to the Edinburgh Fringe in 2016 where I, I really had some issues with some of the cabaret that was here. And I wrote in that piece, which I'd, I'd completely forgotten that I'd written this, you know, well, if I have problems with this, maybe I should develop my own cabaret and come back to the fringe, you know, yeah. which is exactly what I did, which is like really <laughs> weird because I didn't even remember that I did that. So I, I think it was actually from that particular genesis where I was just like, well, if I did a cabaret, what would it be like? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is like... You know, Berlin, okay, when people think of Germany, you think of bad Germany, Nazis, good Germany, cabaret, you know, this is like, you know, what most people think of if you're not from Germany, right? But if, but if you, then if you go to Berlin, you realize, wait a second, there is no cabaret, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, you realize how much the Nazis just mowed that down to the ground, wow. you know? Um, to the point that really the whole cabaret movement you know, or in cabaret burlesque, you know, fine line um, in, in Berlin really began in 2004. Wow, really? Like, two thousand, like 15 years ago. And mostly from um, immigrant expats, you know, English speakers, actually, um, in this tiki bar. I mean, I'll tell you about it. It's a tiki bar in Kreuzberg um, where there was... Um, a few Americans um, that gathered and then they ended up like starting like the whole burlesque scene really from that. Mm -hmm. uh, um, yes, there is like um, Germans as well doing it um, now. A weird little divide there between the Germans who are doing very, very high-end, slick uh, cabaret burlesque, you know, that is, they have this Ziegfeld Follies-like idea, you know, of these glamorous showgirls in beautiful costumes. And then Americans that are most, or not just Americans, Americans, Australians, British people that are mostly doing much more underground, you know, down and divey. Um, it's kind of a weird and interesting divide. Like Europe, they really do think of the whole classic gown and glove thing uh, more than they think of political or subversive burlesque. Um, and yeah, so I had some struggles with that. Like on one hand, being from New York City, um, it's really upped my game in, in terms of 
costume, which is really one of the very last things I think of, you know. I mean, I kind of do costumes as needed, um, costumes in order to tell the story of the piece, rather than, oh, the piece is about the costume, whereas so much of the European burlesque, I mean, it's amazing the costumes they do, that's, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, I mean, I more power to them that, wow, they can construct these, like, brilliant, you know, like, jewel-encrusted, like, just jaw-dropping, you know, um, feathered costumes, you know. That, Pieces of art in themselves. Yeah, exactly. I mean, amazing. yeah, which I, you know, I would never be able to do. Um, but yeah, that their storyline is mostly about how you take that costume off and what that costume does. And that is a storyline, of course. Um, but yeah, like a political storyline that says a little bit more about the world, you know, that's a little bit, mm, um, not something that they're as familiar with. And um, the Full Moon Cabaret, the part of the whole idea is also an interactive or immersive cabaret night. And that's also quite new in Berlin, um, immersive interactive theater. It doesn't quite exist. Um, so yeah, so it was, it was me really being inspired by this one amazing performance artist in New York. His name was Tom Murin. He called himself the alien comic. Um, and I've known him since, a teen since I was a teenager. And he had something called the Full Moon Show, which was on the full moon at PS122. And he had everything. It ran the whole gamut. I mean, he was a performance artist who made um, a lot of masks out of cardboard and did these really strange little characters out of these cardboard masks. Cardboard does figure a lot in everything we do. Um, and um, But he had everything from stand-up comics to... Um, like like really strange little contemporary dance to puppetry to you know little theater pieces everything he was just like this beautiful welcoming all-inclusive um yeah gentleman like really the sweetheart he's from the south so he had that beautiful southern hospitality as well <laughs> and he was gay so there was a lot of like you know um stuff about um um from gay performers at a time particularly you know when i first knew him it was like the whole AIDS crisis, you know, et cetera. Um, and it was super important for them to be center stage and, you know, for that to be showcased. Like, they're here, they're strong, they're proud. Um, so, yeah, so it takes a lot from this idea. But then, of course, we make it more female-centered. And um, um, the other idea that is different is that the Full Moon Cabaret, um, we... There's the Native Americans have a traditional name for every full moon. So we take that name and we turn it into a theme, which is not something Tom did. So, for instance, January is the wolf moon. <laughs> I love this one. This one sounds brilliant. Yeah, so then we would uh, choreograph like an entire Lucha Libre wrestling match, you know. <laughs> um, uh, for the past two years, it's been uh, Mankind versus the world. Mankind's a wrestler and the world is a wrestler. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, Mankind comes with um, his overprotective mother. <laughs> The world has got her, like, jealous girlfriend, you know, who keeps taking off her clothes. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, and we get the whole audience, like, uh, to bet upon mankind or the world. Yeah, there's always a draw where, you know, the fight becomes actually this orgy. Yeah, so that's, that's uh, the wolf moon. So, yeah, so there's a full moon players, like a core ensemble at every one of um, these full moon cabarets, and they always do something. The wrestling match at um, the wolf moon for um, 
the beaver moon is clitoracy, that little play. Um, for um, the the flower moon, you've got like your mating dances. Yes, exactly. Oh, I yeah. love them. Uh, the mating dances. Yeah, so it's always something like, yeah, um, and yeah, it's been this wild little journey with this like little core ensemble of like Berliners that I found from everywhere, like some Germans and some. Um, Americans and some people from yeah the UK or elsewhere yeah everywhere I love it I love that you've just collected your troop of oddballs and talented beauties and just yeah. this great all your artists yeah freaks and bizarre people <laughs> of like you know various talents like you know um, um, opera singers to like yeah comedians to uh, contemporary dancers you name it I know it's great so We've, we've talked a lot about like burlesque and the uh, full moon but you also kind of said about um, about being Asian American and how is the, your kind of like family background is that what are your what your family <laughs> say about oh, God. And that, I know that's like a, a personal one but oh, I just no, I, don't so, care. I find it so interesting it was funny because last night I was making everybody laugh like uh, talk at the, at the flat talking about my father uh, <laughs> Yeah, because um, my my family they're they're super traditional. Um, they're from Taiwan, a little island off of China, um, and Taiwan's got its own subversive little history. I mean, it's about as hunk rock as New York City. Um, most people don't know that Taiwan is mostly indigenous. Actually, there's mm -hmm. sixteen, seventeen, or eighteen different indigenous tribes. They are not Asian. They're not Chinese. They um, are actually the ancestors of the Maori. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's the under, 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 underneath of Taiwan. And then there's this Chinese shit pasted upon it, you know, which is most of the indigenous tribes in Taiwan, they're actually matriarchal. So the Chinese shit that's pasted upon it is all patriarchal. So there's this underground roar, you know, of like woman power that's very much Taiwanese. And um, rebel power, you know, um, Taiwanese is not only these um, indigenous people, but um, these Chinese that came in the 1600s that um, were just basically like hell with China um, um, or just fishermen that wanted their own, you know, part of the world to go to. Uh, for a long time, it was actually illegal for Chinese to go anywhere. So the Chinese that ended up there, they came in waves, you know. And then there were Hakka people that came in the 1800s and my father's family is Hakka. So, um, so those were mostly pirates. <laughs> so my family's probably pirate, actually, part, part of it. Um, so that's, that's Taiwanese. Um, and also most people don't know that, yeah, Taiwan, it was, um, it was under martial law um, for almost 50 years. Um, so I grew up speaking Taiwanese, which was actually banned. It was a banned language. So it, it's kind of similar to, like, you know, Irish, how Gaelic was banned once. It's a very similar, like, thing. Um... But yeah, my family, they're very traditional, and um, they're not artistic at all. They don't <laughs> read at all. Um, they don't listen to music. Uh, they don't understand the arts in any way, shape, or form. Where you know? did you come from? I don't know. I swear <laughs> to God. I've always like wondered whether I was like just separated from birth. Like, who is my real family? <laughs> Honestly. Yeah, it's, it's always it's been like a, this really peculiar thing. And it's like, I don't know what to make of them, and they don't know what to make of me. It's like, it's always been like that. Yeah. So where do you think that spark came from? I, have no, I always felt like, you know, how like, um, uh, what is it? The, was it the, the Munsters, the Adams family, where there was ah. like the, the blonde girl who was like, who was treated very like, like she was, she thought, 
She had like the vampire family that was like really weird, but she was the one that was treated weird, but she's actually normal. That's me, you know, with my family. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I have no idea. I mean, I, I've always, since I was the age of five, known that theater or the stage was where I wanted to be since I was cast in my very first theater piece at the age of five it was called spring is here and I was spring you know <laughs> of course yes. you are so yeah so that was you know since then um and I don't know I mean I I basically taught myself English by you know from 19th century novels um so I've always had this artistic thing and I don't know why I feel like that's such a good um case of study for this nature over nurture because I I feel like my family's very um creative and my mum is a total extrovert she loves dressing up she loves performing um she's never she's not worked in the creative arts uh, since she was um younger and so she's had mostly like a very kind of corporate career but I always thought well of course I'm creative because that's what kind of my my parents yeah I I find it so fascinating that you have come from a family that is there is not even a hint of it and you are so purely creative yeah that's it's not entirely true um uh my mother was a seamstress okay all right so the very small bit I know about you know um sewing comes from her and it's really kind of interesting coming into burlesque you know how I realized wow I would never, ever in a million years, ever have thought I ever absorbed anything from my mother, you know. I mean, ah, she's so frustrating. She comes from, like, she's literally, like, like I don't know, from the Victorian era. Like, ah, uh, my, my parents were arranged. Ah, wow. It's like that. My parents were arranged. My mother, in a million years... She's, she does not believe that a woman really has any power of her own. She um, has always been under the shadow of my father, even though she is actually the ones with the real brains and the business acumen, you know. She would never, ever in her in a million years ever think that she could run a business. It always has to be under a male name of some sort. She thinks a woman has no other um, goal in life than to get married, preferably to a rich man. You know, this is her. Um, so yeah, so you would never ever think that I would ever have absorbed anything from her. But yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to realize through burlesque that wow, it's there is a sense of design that I've gotten from her. Um, uh, anything I know about makeup, for some weird ass reason, I actually have absorbed it from her. Um, it took me a very long time to like accept that. Right, you know, I actually do have a sense of dress and style that I must have absorbed from her and I never really ever thought that that was difficult for some women but you know of course I've learned that yeah some women actually they don't know how to you know do up their hair they don't know how to like you know um uh, style themselves out which I've always thought wow all right you know that it's like you know the the funny little privilege that you grew up with that you just don't even know that you have um I actually started to write a little piece. It's called The Burlesque Dancer My Mother Never Was. <laughs> that I am, is all about that. I yeah. am already obsessed. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Oh, that's so exciting. So we're kind, we're kind of like running out of time, but I do, um, there's been a question that we've been asking all of our guests, um, and it's about our name Persistent and Nasty, and we, we know why we're called Persistent and Nasty, but we're kind of opening up the floor and being like, so what does it mean to you? When you hear the words persistent and nasty, how does that feel to you? Oh my God, I love it. I just <laughs> adore it. Ah, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, to me it's like, uh, yeah, the way that, 
if you're a strong woman, you know, um, it's still not acceptable to be a strong woman, you know. Um, people will call you a bitch. People will call you a cunt. People will, um, yeah, say that you, instead of saying that you're a leader or that, you know, you're, you've got uh, leadership instincts, you know, which is what they would say to a man, you know. No, they say that you're being grating and that you're yelling at them, you know. Yeah, so to be a nasty woman, you know, I mean, yeah, that's what we are, you know. Let's just, you know, let's just be forthright, you know, and do it. And then the whole thing about being persistent, too. I mean, that's part of the name of the game. It's, um, to me, the most difficult thing about being an artist is keeping that go, 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 keep on going, keep on going, keep on going, despite all the rejection that you face constantly. I mean, you're constantly getting no's. You're constantly getting, you can't do that. Oh, there's not enough time. Oh, there's not enough money. No, we're not going to give you this award. No, we're not going to give you that award. No, 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 no. So then to be persistent, that's, that's this, this, this desirable trait that you really, really want. So yeah, to me, that persistent and nasty is so resonant. It's so, it's, it speaks to what you sort of have to be as an artist and as a woman. Boom, that's it. And we are um, experiencing some serious background noise now as a male show uh, comes out. So that's just all part of the festival buzz. So, yeah, um, I, what I was really uh, interested to ask is kind of about, with that kind of persistent and nasty theme in mind, um, I know that you've had a bit of kind of you've had people commenting on your own your performing in the past. Like I, I remember seeing on your Facebook, you'd said boyfriends say this and oh, friends yeah. say that about, oh maybe you should do something else or maybe that's not for you. And you think, well fuck off, no, because that's what you want to do. And oh god, it's so difficult because yeah, I mean as an artist, you're you're constantly in in self doubt. You know, you're constantly like wondering whether you're just shit. You know, honestly, yeah. you know, um, and especially because, you know, you get so much rejection and because, you know, everything you do, you are putting your heart out there, really, you know, you are exposing yourself. You really are. You're saying, this is me. This is what I'm interested in. This is what I have to say. And then if people are telling you that, no, they don't want to hear what you have to say and they're not interested in what you have to say, well, then, of course, it. It's very difficult for you to continue to like just go out there and be like, you know, well, yeah, this is still what I have to say. Is this okay? <laughs> you know, um, I do feel like yeah, a lot of times I I gravitate to issues that are more controversial. Like for instance, um, just I was telling you just a little bit about Taiwan. It's very, very, very controversial for you to suggest that Taiwan has its own history and is his own country, really. You can't say Taiwan's a country. You really can't say that. Um, I made a film that's called Almost Home Taiwan that um, is the untold history of Taiwan through a family road trip. And it's about that. It's so overtly political, though, that there's no way I can really get that anywhere that's, uh, main, that is even partly mainstream. So I do have another idea of how to tackle a subject that is not so overt but yeah so things like that I mean I, I think it is for me um, being in so many ways silenced um, the way that Asian Americans are silenced women are silenced being Taiwanese is being silenced um, being 
poor, really, you know, being working class poor and Asian American working class poor, that's, you're very silenced. So I think it's me just being like, you know, I, I, I just refuse to be invisible, actually. No, I, I exist. I have something to say. It's important for me to actually say this because there are other people just like me, honestly. Um, the whole intersectionality, of, of course, you know, there's other people of different degrees of this and that. But yeah, there's, I do, for instance, I was a reviewer for theater for a few years in New York for NewYorkTheater.com. And it was this, at first, like, oh, why does anybody want to read anything I have to say about theater? But then I realized with this one review of this particular play called Year Zero that I thought was amazing. It's this Cambodian-American writer who um, wrote about um, this brother and sister whose mother came from the killing fields of Cambodia. And uh, they grew up, they'd never been to Cambodia, and they grew up in California. And then their mother very suddenly dies, and they realize that, holy cow, with her death, they have absolutely no connection whatsoever to Cambodia. Um, and they don't even know, like, where she came from, you know, the who their grandparents were or anything. You know, they don't know even a word of Cambodian, of Khmer. Um, and the whole play blew me away, and I wrote this review about it that, you know, was uh, like... But I don't read reviews. I don't read anything about, you know, a piece until after I've gone to see it and write my own review because obviously I don't want to plagiarize in any which way, shape, or form. So after I saw this play and I wrote about it, I read some reviews and I just remember this one review that just like blew me away because the first line in this review was, I don't get it. And it was obviously written by a white male reviewer, you know, who obviously just had no idea of this immigrant experience, you know, and could not understand not being able to speak to your grandmother, like not having the same language. You know, which, of course, if you're an immigrant, you, you, that's your reality. If you're an Asian-American an immigrant in particular, that's your reality. So that's when I realized that, wow, okay, it is actually important for me to step up and actually say something um, because um, I have this perspective from people who normally actually do not have a platform. And not that I have so much of a platform, but I just make myself one. I'm like, yeah, well, okay, this will do as a platform. <laughs> ah, nice box here. Is. Yeah, nice little box. I don't know. I'll stand on the sofa. Why don't I? You know? <laughs> yeah. But I think that's great. And I think that really does encompass the whole persistent and nasty and just a real, like, I think... I, I'm so proud to know you, Viva, honestly. Aww, I just you. think you're bloody brilliant. Aww. I really do. I, I would love to talk to you more. I would love to get even more from you, but I know that we're kind of like tight for time. I was going to quickly um, say about the elitism between theatre and cabaret and burlesque, because we've obviously been doing a lot of um, podcasts with theatre makers, and I feel Full Moon is so it is on the, the cusp of both and I love that it kind of is theatrical and it is a performance and it's scripted and there's so much of that to it but it still is embracing its cabaret burlesque sexy, a darker side and it's got it's really I think it's got everything and well, you definitely will see people taking off their clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and is that so sad? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, there is that burlesque element in it, you know. Um, there is stripping. There is this whole thing of body positivity, body acceptance, you know, bodies of all sizes and shapes. We don't just have, you know, people with magazine bodies. Um, 
Yeah, so there's this burlesque element in it, but yes, um, also we do theater pieces, we do um, devised dances as well that are inspired by everything, Butoh, Pino, Pina Bausch, you know, um, yeah, or like the Blue Velvet one is, um, utilizes Tableau Vivants, which is actually a very usual way of like devising um, physical theater, for example. So yeah, so yeah, I do think that we straddle that intersection between burlesque and theater. Um, and I, I often say that Full Moon Cabaret is a cabaret of ideas where we are actually very, uh, we actually mean it when we say that we revolve around a theme. It's not just, oh, a theme, and then we just forget all about it. Um, each night does explore a theme in various ways, and we do program each night, you know, for acts that actually have something to say about that particular theme. Um, so it's political in a way, too. It's definitely political because um, it says something about um, how we relate to one another and um, 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 about how, uh, yeah, just the absurdity about being human is is so much part of the Full Moon Cabaret experience, you know, so yeah. And, and yeah, nudity, you know, and nudity. <laughs> and, um, um, I mean, because that's political too. A woman's body is so political. It's so political to actually say, yes, you know, this is what we look like. Um, um, free the nipple and all of that, you know. Um, and um, a woman being unashamed of her body, that is something that is so very political nowadays. Um, I mean, I really think, like, modesty is this whole, like, bale of hay that we've all been, like, um, that we've all had to, that we've all been burdened by, you know, when, you know, why is it that a man can take off their shirt and that's fine, but with a woman, you know, you can't. Um, and we all have a body, no? You know, I mean, you have a body, I have a body, we have hair under our arms, I have hair under my arms, you do too, you know, we've got hair on our legs, you know, why is it that, you know, we have to be like so clean shaven and all of this, you know, when a man doesn't have to be. Um, so yeah, so it's reinventing this and it's important for a woman to stand up and be like, yes, I am a sexual being, this is what I look like, I am proud of this, I am unashamed of this, um, and I won't let you dictate what I am. I love it. So thank you so much for joining us again. Just one more time, just recap where we'll find Full Moon, when we'll find it, maybe run through the themes that you've got coming up as well, because I know we've got different moons to be enjoyed. So the Full Moon Cabaret is at the Raging Bull at 161 Lothian Road. Um, it's in a lovely pub, which is famous for its espresso martinis. Oh, yes. They're so good. Um, and um, it's every night at 11 p.m. except for Monday nights. Uh, right now we are on the fish moon. And um, so it's mermaids, sailors, pirates, treasure hunts. And um, next week... We are on the cold moon, which has not been done here at the Edinburgh Fringe yet. I know, I can't wait. Um, and we have a band coming from Berlin. It's a electro-cabaret steampunk band. Um, and the full moon players will be doing devised dances to their live music. And so the cold moon is all about transformation. It's a very goth, dark, dramatic night. Um, vampires and like um, yeah this this very uh, this idea of like 
light to dark, cold to hot, like that. Um, and then there'll be a blue moon once a week. And the blue moon is once in a blue moon, rare and unusual occurrences like love at first sight, like ginger hair, being <laughs> left-handed, being struck by lightning, <laughs> love at first sight. Um, and also blue as in lewd and perverted, like blue movies um, or blue laws. Um, and the blues, and we have the dirtiest of the dirty blues on the blue moon once a week. Um, we also have a gender bender next weekend. It's the pink yes. moon, inverting the pink triangle on the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots. And then the final week is our summery love-in, the flower moon, with my weird version of the Midsummer Night's Dream. It's the Midsummer's wet dream. I love it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your um, knowledge and facts. And I feel like it has been a true TED Talk. It's been a <laughs> TED Talk podcast with Viva Lamore. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> thank you so much, Viva. Thank you. Yeah, lovely to talk to you. And stay nasty. <laughs>